Welcome to the Abbott Loop Community Church Podcast. For more information about Abbott Loop, visit abbottloop.org. Good morning, church. I'm excited to be with you this morning. Thanks for the awesome introduction, babe. <laughs> it's my pleasure to be opening up our Emmanuel series as we get into the Christmas season. We're going to be doing a three-part series on Emmanuel, hope, peace, and joy. And it's my pleasure to be bringing the first message in that series on hope. So let's pray, and then let's get into the word. Jesus, I thank you for your presence. I thank you, God, that with you nothing is ordinary, that nothing is boring, that nothing is typical. But in you there is just a thrill of hope. That in you there is joy everlasting. God, I thank you, Jesus, that you're so good to us. We just want to be close to you this morning. We want to hear your words. I pray that you would open up every heart and that Truly, the understanding of our minds and our hearts would be transformed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be starting off in Matthew chapter 2 and basically camping out in this uh, chapter today. <clears throat> Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Behold, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. He called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law and asked, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel." Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time that the star first appeared. Then he told them, go back to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was, and when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened up their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So we're all pretty familiar with this story. Maybe when you think of this story, you think of the nativity set that's set up on your mantle with the sheep and Mary and the baby Jesus in a manger. You think of the three kings that are all encircled around him. Maybe, you know, the, the song from the 19th century hymn writer John Hopkins, We Three Kings of Orient Are, comes to mind. Anybody? Just me? You've probably heard this story so many times that you think that you're familiar with it, but I'd like to say that there's much more to this story than what our Christmas traditions present us with. And at the very heart of this story, I believe, is the heart of God calling all mankind to himself, that he's drawing us in to respond to salvation, and he's calling his people home. We get to see three different responses to Jesus in this passage. We see the outright refusal of Jesus by King Herod, we see the religious leaders' ignorance, oblivion towards the arrival of Jesus. And then we see the response of the wise men. And I want to talk about the perspective of the wise men as they journeyed to find whatever would be at the end of this star. Like, as they searched for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. These wise men were journeying in hopes of what they would find. 
Now, unlike the Christmas Carol proclaims, we don't actually know if these wise men were kings. We know very little about them, but they, they might have been wealthy men. They might have been servants of king. They could have been elevated to a royal status, much like Daniel in his day or Joseph in his day, how they were magi and they served kings. But we don't actually know much about them. The wise men word here in the Greek is magi. It's where we get the word magicians for uh, today. And uh, Daniel would have been considered a magi during his time. He might have been the most famous magi that ever lived, actually because he was so accurate in his information, and he had so many um, prophecies about who, what was gonna happen in history. So these men were much like those magi, like Daniel and the kings of, uh, like that served Pharaoh or King Nebuchadnezzar. They were astrologers and interpreters of omens. So they studied the planets, they studied the stars, and they gained specific insight into the world through their observation. They were foreigners. So these were people who did not believe in God. They didn't worship God. And they would have been considered pagan by the Jewish people of the time. And because science was so underdeveloped at that time and the people were highly suspicious or superstitious, they could have thought that these men were like sorcerers. And they had come to worship the newborn king of the Jews. And this is why Matthew catches our attention by saying, Behold, wise men show up on the scene. Behold, wise men arrive in Jerusalem. He's saying, look, pay attention. Something's out of place. These men don't belong here. They're not Jewish. And they're seeking to find the newborn king of the Jews. They're being led by a star, following bits and pieces of prophecy to find a child who's supposed to be king. And when I read the story of the wise men, I see men, a group of educated academics, I see them searching through text and studying the the stars, reading and pouring over these words for promises that they had grown up wondering, are these things real? And it appears from their words that they had known or they had access to the book of Daniel where he prophesied about the anointed one arriving and establishing peace on earth. And they would have had access to the prophecies of Balaam, another pagan who the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied about the arrival of the Messiah. In Numbers chapter 24, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. There shall be a star that rises up out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise up out of Israel. So why in the world would these Gentile astronomers, these pagans, be searching for a Jewish king? What would drive them to do that? Even if they were right about his royalty, what in the world difference would it make? What difference would it make? Rome ruled the world. The Jews were an oppressed people. And historically, the Roman Empire was like ravishing and taking and conquering the entire land, oppressing every nation that they came into contact with. So what difference would it make? These wise men would have known the brutality of the Roman Empire personally. They would have grown up underneath it. They would have experienced it intimately. And so for them to read, to read words that promised a king provided by the God of the Jewish people who was going to establish peace would have been profound, a profound promise. Just a promise that would ignite hope. Hope that there could be a better tomorrow. Hope that there could be a brighter future. So it was hope. Hope drove them to take the journey. Hope drove them to move out of their place and follow after the star. So they took hope in the prophecies or the word of God. 
They took hope in the star, a divine guidance that it was something. They might have been the only people at the time because of their predisposition to study the stars because they would have been religiously looking at the patterns of the stars, looking into them, reading into them, saying, does this mean something? Who would have caught it? Divine guidance. So they see a natural phenomenon, a star that's out of place. It matches up with the words that they've been pouring over their whole life. And it confirms their hope. And so they follow it. They have the guts to follow after that star in eager anticipation of what they would find. See, hope will do that to us. It'll cause us to do something. It'll call us to action. Hope motivates us forward. It energizes us. It gives us a picture of what could be. It's like the dangling carrot that's just out there that we're like, I could get that. You see, these wise men traveled perhaps a thousand miles, maybe even more, on the basis of hope. Hope that there, there could be a solution to all the pain that they experienced their life. Hope that there could be a better tomorrow for generations of people to come. Hope is contagious. Hope is hard to kill. Hope gives us a, vet, a vision for our life. The Bible says that people without vision perish. And I believe that hope gives us a vision for ourselves. Vision of a better future for our kids. Vision for hope for our marriages and for our families. Hope stirs up our minds that we can be strong and courageous, bold. That we can suffer and endure adversity and hardship. All on this eager anticipation of what could be. What might be. Longing for better things. Longing for something we haven't yet encountered yet. Longing and hoping for something we haven't tasted. This is hope. And all throughout the Bible, we see scriptures where hope and faith go together. They go hand in hand. So much so that they're hard to separate even. But they are distinct. So I I like to think about it like this. Faith is like the mother of hope. Faith births hope. If, If faith was like a tree, then hope would be the fruit it produces. Faith is for the right now, the thing I'm standing on, the faith I'm counting on. But hope is the vision for the future, the thing that I could have. It motivates me. It energizes me. It gives me a picture of something I haven't had yet that I need, want, desire, long for. Faith is in my heart. But hope is in my mind. It's in our minds. It's a perspective. It's a framework of thinking and perceiving through and looking. It's a lens we look through in our life. And faith is like the beginning of life before tribulation and hardship. Faith would be the thing that comes out of those tribulations. It proceeds from those tribulations. When we're when when the pressure is on, we hope arises because we we need to know that there's a promise of a better tomorrow. That when we wake up, it's going to be better than the day that we left behind. So hope is believing past what you can see right now in your present circumstances and being sure of what is to come. But I like to define hope above all of these things as this. Hope is a perspective of steady, continuing goodness from God. Just think about it for a little bit longer. A perspective of steady, continuing 
goodness. That's like never stopping, always and forever, never going to give up on you type of hope. It's goodness. It's all for you, baby. It's coming. It's continuously coming, like a stream, like a river that doesn't stop. There's no drought. There's no end. It's living water. Like hope. This is our perspective that we see the world through, that we see our lives through, that we see our circumstances through. Hope cannot be divorced from God or it's just wishful thinking. It's not like, oh, I hope it snows. That's wishful thinking. I hope I lost three pounds today. I hope, you know, like in the Christmas season, are you kidding me? (laughs) Only if you're very dedicated. Wishful thinking and hope are not the same thing. All genuine hope is based on faith. So we can put our faith in all sorts of things. We have all put our faith in the wrong things at certain times in our lives. We put our faith in men or in relationships or friendships. We put our faith in the the number of dollars we have in our bank account. We put our faith in our own efforts and what we can earn for ourselves. We put our faith in um, all like promotions that we can get at work in our career and how significant we can matter to those who are around us. We put our trust in other religions or other faiths that might produce for us a hope. But all of these things will disappoint and they can cause so much damage to our hope when those things do not become a reality. When hope is deferred, it makes our hearts sick. There's so much energy to hope and then have it downcast. Hope again. Put my faith in something else and it fails me again. Long for something else and it fails me again and it doesn't satisfy and it doesn't fulfill me. When we have no hope, this leads us to dark places. When we have no hope, it leads us to low places, dark thinking, lonely places. Without hope, we have no vision for our life. We have no promise of a better tomorrow, nothing to live for. And so the enemy would love to just come and snuff out your hope, to blow it out, to make you give up, to make you surrender, to be hopeless. So much so that he would even cost you your own life. Steal your hope, steal your joy, never have you fulfilled. So you would just give up. But we have a promise of so much more. We have a greater hope that we have God on our side, in us, living through us, empowering us, the source of hope and life. We have Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We have Jesus, the champion of our faith. We put our faith in Jesus. It will not lead us to shame. We won't be disappointed. There are so many things that will lead us to shame, but not Jesus. So when we look at the Magi, they had put their hope in this little boy that they might find at the, at the end of this star. They were putting their hope in the future. This boy would have been like 18 months old or two years old at least, at most maybe. They weren't putting their hope in what he could do. He could offer them nothing presently. He's a baby. He literally could do nothing to change their circumstances. But they put their hope in the future of what he could do, that he could change the world, that he could provide peace on earth, which would have been such a longing of theirs. So they had hope in the future, what could be, what they would find. They had hope in the journey. So these wise men had gone off and they had traveled after this star. They had little information. We don't know how long they were looking into these prophecies. We don't know how long they were looking at the stars. But they move forward anyways in hope. Do we have that much hope in the process of life? 
When we have missing information and we don't know what we're going to do next, we don't know where we're going to go to school, we don't know where we're going to live, we don't know how we're going to pay the bills, we don't know how to raise our children, do we, we don't know what to do. What do we take hope in? When, when the word of the Lord has come to you and he's given you a promise and it's still not fulfilled yet, you're like, well, I got that word at 16, so I'm only like, you know, way older than 16 now, still waiting to see, still waiting to see if that is going to come true. When we only have bits and pieces of the things that God wants to do in us and through us, are we still willing to hope and believe for that bright future? They had missing pieces, and they moved forward anyways. They moved forward anyways, even when they were in danger. They came into a territory, like, and I want to say that the wise men were probably more than three individuals. There's only three gifts. Yes, I know. Frankincense and myrrh, but that doesn't mean only three people came. There could have been an entourage of wise men who came. Maybe, I mean, some people say that it was up to like a dozen or more people who stride in and they come to the palace of King Herod with all these gifts to give to another king. Uh-oh. King Herod was crazy. King Herod was known for genocide and for killing, I mean, you stood in his way, you were dead. That's the kind of king that he was. So if you, so another person comes into the king's territory and he says, we are looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews. Now Herod is the king of the Jews, but he wasn't born king of the Jews. He took the throne himself. So if there was one who was born king of the Jews, he had a, he had birthright to the throne, which is far more significant. So the ground underneath Herod's like security would begin to shake. And this is why it greatly disturbed him. That's what the scripture says in Herod was greatly disturbed. Then he called all the religious leaders and he'd be like, where do I find this boy? You know, because he's getting, he has a routine here. You get in his way, he kills you. So, I mean, he's plotting already. And this is why all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Because if the king ain't happy, nobody's happy. He's thinking, oh my gosh, here we go again. Get ready, get ready. I mean, king's going to throw a fit. We're all going to die probably. You know? So they show up and they, I mean, this hope emboldened them. They had courage to even face the king who might put them to death. But they, keep moved, they kept moving forward. What a great hope. And my question for us this morning, church, is how is your hope? What are you hoping in? Who are you putting your hope in? What are you putting your hope in? Sometimes we have to stop and check and do a heart check and say, what am I really putting my hope in? Is my hope in having a white Christmas? Is my hope in having, you know, perfect family time? Is my hope in having no more aftershocks? Is my hope in, you know, peace? Like, what is it in? But if we keep our hope in Jesus, then we're not going to be shaken. We're not going to be stirred up. We're not going to be disappointed and up and down and bouncing around. But hope will sustain us. It'll keep us on level ground. It'll protect us from fear and anxiety and depression. It's like a helmet that we put on that defends us when our hope is in the Lord. He is our defender. He is our rock. He is our strong tower. So how is your hope this morning, church? The most shocking part to me about this story still is who's doing the hoping. We have pagan astrologers who are responding, yet it's not the Jewish people or the religious people at the time. Why does it take pagan astrologers to come around and ask, where is he who's born king of the Jews? Wouldn't this be the primary concern of the people of that day? They would have known the scripture intimately. 
They would have known it better than anyone. You would have, th you would have thought that you would have been waiting for these signs and wonders. Just, you know, I know somebody you don't know. Like, you know, they could have seen the stars in the sky. They saw the same stars that the wise men saw. They read the same scriptures that the wise men had read. It did not stir up hope inside of them. Why is this? They just went on as with things like usual. Affirming the words of the Apostle John that he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And at first I thought that this just reflected the cold indifference of the religious people, that they could care less that the Messiah came or that, and that they were just stuck in their own ways. Because this was King Jesus, who was supposed to come and fulfill the prophecies that they had been waiting for, blessings for nations. But they were stuck in their own knowledge. They were not hopefully awaiting the arrival of their king. And I want to cut them some slack because in their, from their perspective, they're probably looking and seeing and thinking, oh, that prophecy has been fulfilled through this king, and these things are going to happen like this, and they're not seeing it how, how they thought it was going to play out. They had a picture in their head of how the Savior was going to come, and it wasn't happening like this. So they think, we don't need to pay attention to that. We have our own ways. We have our own thoughts. We're like, they're stuck in their own traditions, and then they just miss the most significant arrival of the king because they left no room in their hearts, no room in their minds to think we could be wrong, that God could surprise us. Church, we don't want to be a people who are so stuck in our own traditions, so stuck in our own ways, thinking God is going to fulfill my prophecy this way, God is going to provide for me that way, that we miss out on the significant things and we leave no room for him to surprise us. Come on, I want to be a people who will leave room for God to surprise me. That we don't ever grow mundane and routine in our relationship with Jesus. That we don't just become really good um, companions, but that we have a love relationship with him where he's romancing us and surprising us and drawing us in and that we're responding. We're eagerly awaiting with hopeful anticipation all that he has for us. We're like, I hear you talking and my, I'm just like, the words are dripping off your lips. What do you have to say to me? This is how we want to respond to Jesus. And here's the point, that when Herod calls that meeting, it doesn't even give them a thrill of hope. They're so used to their normal life. They just keep going. They have no interest. They don't even accompany the Magi. They don't go investigate for themselves. They have stopped seeking. They've stopped searching. They've left no room. They're just going through the motions. We have to be careful not to just go through the motions of our faith, going through the motions of our everyday life, just waking up, doing the same things, thinking it's ordinary. Life with Jesus is supposed to be an adventure. Life with Jesus is supposed to be intoxicating. Life with Jesus is supposed to be amazing. It's supposed to be thrilling. But we get so used to it, so familiar with it, that we just kick back, go to church, say hi, greet everybody, go on, eat some lunch, whatever. And we wake up and we do it all over again the next day, you know? We have... We have to have hope, a, a perspective of steady goodness, continuing goodness coming into our life that we're like, we have a bigger perspective. We have a hope and a vision for what God wants to do through us and in us that we're eagerly waiting for instructions. What am I going to do today? Where are you going to take me today? What do you want to do through me? What is, the what is your hope, Holy Spirit? How can I partner with you? Hope keeps us from bouncing from highs to lows to being shaken and stirred, but rest and right. And we have to make room for the possibility that we don't have it all figured out, that we don't see it all, that God might have a better plan than we have for ourselves, and he might want it more than we want it for ourselves. Hope is so important. 
So how do these pagan Gentiles respond when they find Jesus? The Magi, they fall down in eager receptivity to worship Jesus. This type of worship, and I want to paint a picture for you. Imagine if you were Mary, and now you have like a dozen men riding in on camels with like more riches than you've ever seen in your life. She would have been like 16-year-old girl who's from poverty. And now she has all these men who are arriving at her home to worship her son, and they fall prostrate on the floor before them, and they begin to worship him. This word, worship, is a compound word that means to kiss towards. So all, I mean, they're just bowing low and pouring themselves out before before God. These were academic-minded heathens. And then they stand in the presence of God, and immediately they're changed, and they recognize, and they fall down on their feet before God. And they might have not realized the fullness of who they were standing in, but they surely recognized it enough to fall down and worship him. They were changed. They were changed. They responded in worship. They gave him gifts. They lavished these expensive, prophetic, generous gifts before God. And we know the rest of the story. We have other bits of prophecy that they didn't have. We knew Isaiah 7, 14, for the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel, God with us. This is, I mean, we know the rest of the story. We have Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a son is born, or a child is born, and a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. We have Emmanuel, God with us. This is our hope, is that he's always with us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He's not too deaf to hear your prayers. He knows what you're hoping for. He knows what you're longing for. He knows even the things that you haven't dared to hope for because hope is so distant from you. He knows where you've been discouraged. He knows where you've been depressed. He is God with you. He put on flesh and he moved into your neighborhood. He moved into your heart. He knows your business. He's God with you. This God with you is the hope, the light of the world, the hope and the the Savior of the world. We know the fullness of Jesus. We know the fullness of his identity. So we have an even greater promise than even these wise men had. Our response should even be greater than their response. We should partner with him and spread this hope. And spread this hope and give this hope away, not just waiting for him to ignite a thrill of hope in us when we're, we were once weary. We should be telling and proclaiming of the hope of Jesus Christ. How our lives have been transformed. And yes, we all get discouraged. Yes, we all need fresh and renewed hope at times. But when we realign ourselves with the hope giver, then it is our job, it's our, re- our response to give that hope away. To those who have never even heard, to those who have not experienced, to those who do not have that kind of hope. See, from the very moment that Jesus arrived on the scene, from that birth when he's born, God begins to draw all people. I mean, these men were different languages, different tribes, different tongues. I mean, they were not Jews. They were from from Eastern lands. They could have been from different regions. Who even knows? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It just reminds me of how God gave the promise to Abraham that he's going to be the father of many nations. And then here these wise men show up, and they're men of different nations, acknowledging, acknowledging Jesus. 
You see, God is fulfilling his, prophet, his prophecy and his promise. He's calling all men to himself, drawing all men to himself. In Romans 4.18, it says, even when there was no hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. Abraham was like 90. There was hope against no hope that he was going to produce a kid. And he kept on hoping, longing that God was able to fulfill these promises. He wasn't going to give up. And then we see this promise in Revelation 7, 9, 7, 9. It says, after this I looked and there stood before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, every tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't this amazing? I mean, God has been orchestrating all the details, all the stories in the Bible. We're not just stories, but every little intricate detail. He wanted you to know that salvation was for everybody through Jesus Christ. That we get to partner with this story and we get to spread the hope of the world. That when we are discouraged, that when we are downcast, when we feel depressed, we can realign ourselves with the hope of the world. And then, then we can take our testimony out into the world that they could join the multitude of people who are proclaimed salvation is to our God, through our God. In the name of Jesus, this is our hope. This is our great hope that we have been rescued, that we have been redeemed, that we have a story to tell. Just like those wise men, they had a story to tell. They had come so far. How far have you come? Where is your hope, church? In verse 13 of that same passage in Revelation, it said, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answer, sir, you know, and he said, these are those who have come out of great tribulation. How many of us have come out of great tribulation? At least the most tribulation that we've known up to now, it's been great to us. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. If we have received Jesus, then he clothes you in a robe of white. And we're standing before the throne of God. And he says, therefore, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day in and day out in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. This is our promise. This is our hope that we put our faith and we put our trust and we put our hope in Jesus. He will shelter us with his presence. That makes me hopeful. They will never hunger or thirst. Like that longing to be fulfilled when we put our hope in Jesus, we'll never hunger, we'll never thirst. He will satisfy us. The sun will not beat down on them or any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. How is our hope, church? Who are we hoping in? Where does our hope come from? I want us to have a realignment with where we're putting our hope this Christmas, where we're focusing our attention in, what we're paying attention to, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the champion of our faith, that we would not forget that he is the reason that we celebrate this season. It's not so that we can have a white Christmas or so that we can sit down at a table and eat yummy cinnamon rolls. These are all second-rate hopes. This is wishful thinking. Our real hope is that we would be able to participate in the gospel and spread the hope of Jesus to those who do not have hope this Christmas. We have been given a hope. I want to leave you with this verse in Romans. It's in chapter 15. I pray that God, 
the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is my prayer for us today, church, is that we will realign our hope in Jesus Christ. And I, I just want to respond to everybody here who doesn't have hope. Maybe you've been discouraged. Maybe you've been downcast. Maybe you have never received Jesus. I believe that God has a promise to fulfill to you this morning. And I want to I respond to that. So with every head bowed, with every eye closed, if you have not accepted Jesus, you put your faith, you put your hope and your trust in other things, in other relationships, in other religions even, and you have remained depressed and downcast and discouraged, if you do not have the hope of salvation, then this day is for you. This moment is for you. God did not draw you here by coincidence. He led you here so that you would encounter God. So if that's you this morning, simply put your hand in the air because I want to pray with you this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Just pray this with me, church. Jesus, I recognize you as King of Kings as hope for my life. I put my faith in you, Jesus. You are where my hope comes from. Come and save me from myself and give me a vision and hope for a better life. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, if you will, will you stand with me? We're going to respond to King Jesus this morning. We're going to respond to the amazing hope that we have in King Jesus this morning. If you have been struggling with just depression and it feels like a, a little rain cloud just keeps following you around, this pesky little cloud, and it won't leave you alone and it's just harassing you, those thoughts, you don't have to deal with those thoughts anymore. You have the author and the finisher of your faith. And he's here this morning to meet with you to give you a fresh hope. If you, if it's even gone even worse than that and you've been struggling with suicidal thoughts and you have no hope, your back is against the wall. You're like, I have never been so depressed in my life and it doesn't seem like I should keep going on. It's just, this is the worst it could be. Jesus has not forgotten about you. Jesus is serious about you. He takes you seriously. He takes your hope very seriously, and he's here to breathe fresh hope into your life. And I believe the people here in the front, they are going to have words of prophecy for you that's going to reignite hope, and you're going to feel hope. The thrill of hope is going to wake up your weary heart. Respond to the Lord this morning. Do not leave here until you respond to King Jesus and until you get a fresh feeling of hope this morning. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please connect with us at abbotloop.org and like us on Facebook. We hope to see you soon.